0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Anna Lindner, your host, and today we are going to be talking to Dr. Libron Ortiz about his book. Uh, he is a formal, former mechanic, a practicing engineer, philosopher, and amateur photographer whose philosophical writing is preoccupied with maroonage, revolt, violence, Narcoculture, Suicide, and Temporality. His book, Filosofia de Cimarronaje, which we'll discuss today, was awarded the first honorable mention for the Essay Prize 2021 by Penn Club Puerto Rico. He is currently working as a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras campus. Pedro, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, can you talk to us a bit about this book, where it came from? Um, what your background is in terms of the writing of it and any other information that you think might be relevant.
0: Sure. Um, so first of all, you know, thanks for, for inviting me and for, for having me. Um, so I guess you could say, you know, my relationship to the academy in general and academic writing, um, it's a little weird, um, not traditional. I guess you could say, you know, my, I formally trained as a mechanical engineer and that's how I earn a living. Um, but then I got into philosophy. I did a master's degree in philosophy first out of curiosity, really. I was never really a good student um, in school, particularly in high school. Um, didn't really care much about reading or writing. Um But after high school, once I was studying engineering, you know, there's a a borders next to, you know, where I used to live. So I used to spend my time there and just got interested in in some of the books I was supposed to read in high school that I didn't. I was like, well, let me, you know, probably check it out. Kind of after I was out of high school and um, I kind of got drawn into like certain philosophical themes, I guess you could say, in certain uh, works of fiction, um, like Dostoevsky, for example, right? Um, and then I decided, well, let me read some actual philosophy, you know, quote unquote. Um, and I tried reading some Nietzsche, and I just I, it, I couldn't figure it out. And then I said, all right, well, I need to actually, you know, have somebody break this down for me. Um, and I had a, a neighbor or my mom has a neighbor. I was a retired, uh, art professor at the university of Puerto Rico. And she kind of told me like, look, you know, you should probably go interview with the director of the philosophy department and so on and so forth. Um, so that's how I got into it, you know, into philosophy. And then this book in particular, it, it's really, it came about in a really contingent way. In a really random way, um, there's a, a bookstore near the University of Puerto Rico Rio Piedra campus called Librería Mágica. Um, and if you're familiar, you know with that campus and with that bookstore, you know it's it's importance, right? And um, you know, I live two hours away from campus. I live on the west side of the island in Moca, um, so it's quite a drive when I was studying. And sometimes I'd make it to, to the campus a little bit early, um, you know, maybe an hour and a half early uh, before class starts. So I would go to the bookstore, right, and just like look at stuff. And I came across one book on slave revolts. And I found that particularly interesting because nobody had ever talked to me about that, right? Right. And then, you know, as I was getting into philosophy, I came across the Caribbean Philosophical Association and and there was a conference that year in New York and my old mentor and uh, director of the department kind of told me, hey, you should, you know, start getting into the, the, the conference scene, like it'd be beneficial for you, so on and so forth. So submitted an abstract to my surprise, it got accepted. So I was questioning if the organization was legit because like, how do they accept my abstract? You know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So when it got accepted, started looking into that and uh, the president at the time, Neil Roberts, you know, I did some, some Googling, um, on him and I came across his book, freedom is Marinage. Right. So I was reading this book on slave revolts and kind of learning a little bit, the history of Marinage. And then I came across this book, where somebody's thinking about, you know, Marinage philosophically. And to me that opened up, you know, just a world of possibilities with respect to what, what you could think about philosophically. You see what I'm saying? Because particularly University of Puerto Rico, it's really, you know, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Nietzsche, you know, so on and so forth, you know, just, but then to see this book, it just blew my mind. And and that's when I decided, OK, I want to do my thesis on that. Right. And kind of in conversation with Neil Roberts in his book. So that's how this book came about. It was really just a conversation uh, and a product of coming across Neil's work and some other things I was reading at the time, just completely, completely random. Right. So that's kind of how it came about.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks for that uh, background info. And um, yeah, it is really important to do work that's not in the academy and that is kind of alongside or even just completely out of um, and bringing in that different approach and different perspective is great. Um, And so the book is written in Spanish, right? So it's entirely in Spanish. Obviously, you have some phrases that you borrow from English from certain, you know, writers that you've read. Um, So let's talk about the term Simarronaje, which obviously the English Marinage comes from the French Marronage, so there's some linguistic kind of stuff happening here. Um, But simaronahe is more than just the act of fleeing slavery or colonialism is one definition. But could you talk briefly about what is meant by cimarronaje beyond just, you know, runaway, right? Uh, Cimarron is translated as a runaway slave usually, but that's not really accurate. So could you talk to us a little bit about the more surrounding uh, philosophy, if you will?
0: Yeah, so I guess you could say historically, kind of as you're pointing out, Marnage has been divided kind of into two different categories, if you will. Petite and Grand Marnage. Petite Marnage being, you know, it's kind of temporary flight from the plantation, but eventually, you know, the individual comes back or what have you. Grand Marnage being, um, you know, flight for extended periods or permanently, often in groups, establishing, you know, societies or communities, you know, ways away from the plantation. Um, but what I was trying to think through in my book, and it kind of relates to the fact of me working in corporate America, right. And me questioning, you know, it's something I have to do to earn a living, but how do I not kind of lose my soul in the process of, you know, working in corporate America? Um, and how do I not embody that type of uh, kind of normative existence that they require from you to be a productive employee or whatever the case may be? So, kind of grappling with that as well. So, so to me, it's it you know it's just from that perspective, marinage is that it's kind of a, a rejection. Um, you could say flight from that normative existence, right? That, that kind of normative way of being in the world and with others. So in the book I engage, you know, obviously I was mentioning, Neil Robert's work. He develops a concept based off, you know, Fanon, uh, sociogenic marinage, And he kind of sees the, uh, Haitian revolution as, uh, paradigmatic of that, right? Um, which is essentially, I mean it, it's revolution, right? That's that's what that is. Um, and what I wanted to think about was, you know, if you look at the Haitian Revolution and you and you take it back, right? Like Leslie Manigault said, you know, the Haitian the thinker, the Haitian Revolution was a product of a mutation of Marinage or Marinage kind of mutated into, uh you know, what the Haitian revolution was. So I wanted to think about that aspect of it, right? Like Marinage more in the quote unquote strict sense. Like what does, what's, what's the, how do we think about that? And in Neil's work, um, you know, because he's, he's focusing particularly on the Haitian revolution. I wanted to think about this other, like what came before the Haitian revolution, right? And then evolved into that revolution and to me it's that right and kind of in retrospect you know at the time sylvia winter's work was not in my bibliographical constellation but i think if i would have came across her work sooner i probably wouldn't have written the book because it's like i'm saying all this stuff in the book but just you know Sylvia Winsor's notion of of man as a particular genre of the human that overrepresents itself. And then there's other genres of the human and other ways of expressing that humanity. I said all this stuff in the book and I was trying to get at what she said. <laughs> so, but that's what I think about when I think about Marinage.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, the surrounding context is very important. As a historian, I'm like, you need that context. Um, and just for background context, um, Haitian Revolution, uh, 1791 to 1804, really long struggle against the Spanish colonizers in um, Saint-Domain, which eventually was established as the Republic of Haiti by people of African descent, uh, mostly the enslaved, but also some uh, non-enslaved. They called them mulatos. Um and that background isn't really important. And, I mean, maybe, you know, Sylvia Winters is Jamaican, um, so she writes in English, so maybe this is kind of the parallel Spanish um, conceptual conceptualization of um or marronage. Um, she writes about marronage specifically in English, but, you know, maybe that's some type of, you know, collaboration almost, Um across languages. And that is something that I think about a lot too, because I write about the Caribbean, I write about Cuba, so the Spanish Caribbean specifically. And I'm always thinking like, okay, what's in English that I have and what's in Spanish? And are those two works that are in conversation, are they in conversation with each other? Or is there work that's being developed parallel? Um, and obviously a lot of the people that you read are writers, thinkers who are writing in English, and then you draw those in, right, into your work. Um, so I guess what was the political or otherwise decision to write it in Spanish, and are you planning on having it translated? Are you going to translate it yourself, or do you want to? like, was that an intentional decision to have it be in spanish and not in english
0: that's a really good question um i guess the the main intent of doing it in in spanish it's, it's weird because like english is my first language um, so i tend to think in english and then write in spanish and it tends to be a challenge for me and actually when i was working on the master's thesis my uh, advisor kind of picked up on that she was like you're thinking in english and you could tell because you're translating stuff quite literally don't do that (laughs) so a part of it was i wanted to challenge myself in that way right To just write write writing in spanish um just as an academic exercise um but then the other part of it too was is very much as you're saying it was a political decision to publish this not only in spanish but you know the 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 publisher it's a small non-profit um press here in puerto rico Editora Educación Emergente. and not only that right um they're also based on the west side of the island right um in, in puerto rico in general the metropolitan area san juan area the capital tends to be always like the locus of you know, uh, uh, whether it be the conference, you know, circuit or, you know, just uh, publication just all, you know, and people forget like there's work being done outside of, you know, San Juan, right? So to me, it was really important to do that because in, in my mind, um, you know, this is, I didn't even, I never thought I was going to write a book ever, you know, that was never on my in my plans to write a book. So I thought, okay, this is probably gonna be my first and only book. So I want it to be in Spanish, be published in Puerto Rico and available in bookstores to where, you know, cause that's who I'm writing for, right? I'm writing for, you know, potentially a kid that, you know, may come across it, may see it. I mean, they sell this at the mall near, you know, the bookstore, the mall close to where I live, right? It's not like a, university bookstore it's like you see what i'm saying like next to the cookbooks and like the popular you know literature they sell my book so i'm thinking okay if some kid comes across it looks at it finds an interesting reason learn something from it and that you know that's that's what it's about for me so
1: yeah that's that's great and um it shows that your goals are very different from um what Goals often are, which are of reach and are of, um, you know, scope in terms of who's going to read this the most and who's where's it going to sell. So, um, yeah, that's great to hear, and that can even be, you know, a version of marinage or simarunaje. Uh, in itself, you could even argue being outside of the academy and of the the kind of hegemonic domination of the academy and or just power in general. Um, So very um, intentional decision, I would say there. Um, Rotating back to something you were talking about a little bit earlier, you mentioned sociogenic or and then also in the book you talk about analectico or analectic uh, cimaronaje. So I was wondering if you could talk about how those two are different, because that's a thread that comes through the book where you're comparison comparing them, but also talking about their vive, um, their back and forth or their kind of oscillation into and through each other. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit
0: so at the time I was um, I had come across Enrique Dussel, Philosophia La Liberacion. Um, so it's really a product of, of that, right? Um, of the fact that I was reading his work like right after I had read, or right before I had read, you know, Neil Roberts' work, and I just kind of put those two in conversation. So, you know, for Enrique Dussel, the way I, I read him, um, and that Filosofia that book, Philosophia, he has this concept. Um, el momento analectico Or the analectical moment Which is like this primary affirmation You know, it's not It, it, it has to do with, uh, you know Dialectics and what have you But essentially what he says is that prior to a negation There's a primary affirmation, right? So like if we think about enslavement um, And resistance to enslavement it's not just the negation of a negation, right? The negation of this process or system that negates one's humanity. It's not just that, but there's a primary affirmation of one's humanity that comes before that, right? Um, so thinking through that, which also relates to, again, somebody whose work was not in my bibliographical constellation at the time, but I probably wanted to have to have in the book is, you know, like Cedric Robinson, for example, right. Who says you had these individuals that were kidnapped from Africa and enslaved. And when you look at the black radical tradition, it's not merely, you know uh, you know, for example, a group of Marxists that happened to be black, right. Or, you know, they have their own traditions, their own cosmologies their own, you know, so on and so forth. So that's that's kind of what I was trying to get at when I spoke about analytical marinage. It's it's that, right? It's it's you know, distinct ways of being and knowing that are uh, how can you put it of those individuals, right? Of those peoples of African descent, right? Those traditions, those customs. Whereas the way I interpret a sociogenic marinage is kind of that direct confrontation with with the state, with power, so on and so forth. And really, I guess what you could, you know, what I was really trying to think through is the history of marinage in general. When you look at it, right, particularly Latin America, is outright warfare. Right. But when you look at the Great Dismal Swamp, for example, and some other places like they, there, there was no direct confrontation in that way. So I wanted to think through some of that, like, what does that mean? You know, how do we think about that? Um, and part of it, too, I think, is I don't know. I don't know if Fanon is really useful to think about marinage with. Right. So like when you look at black skin, white mass, for example, you know, that famous passage about the zone of non-being and so forth. Like he's not saying that, you know, black folk are locked in the zone of non-being. He doesn't say that. Right. He says, you know, they're not afforded that possibility of descending into the hell that is the zone of non-being, which is the indeterminacy of freedom. Right, because black subjects are overdetermined by that historical racial schema. And he says, in the majority of cases, right? It's not, you know, every black person, period, point blank. That's not what he said. In the majority of cases. And if I recall correctly, there may be even a footnote somewhere, or maybe in the body of the text itself, where he says, like, Oh, you know, black folks in the US, it's a little different because they they struggle. Right, like they're fight. He's thinking about a particular context, right? Black folk in France or Martinique, so on and so forth. And I think Marinage is is it's not, it, you know, uh, it's evidence, right? There's a evidence there that the what Nelson Maldonado recalls a coloniality of being. It's not ubiquitous, right? It's not, you know. Uh, 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 how can you put it? Yeah, it's not ubiquitous, right? Dehumanization is not, you know, we we can't say that, you know, black folk, racialized folk, you know, folk from the global south, however you want to put it, internalize that, you know, dehumanization. Like, you you, you can't speak on those terms, I guess is what I was trying to say with what I was struggling to think through, you know. And I'm still struggling to think through.
1: Right. And maybe Fanon is more of a jumping off point in some ways where um, he might be a point of departure, but yeah, he might not give us an answer um, fully, at least. Um, In terms of the question of what do you do as a racialized, colonialized subject who is still suffering from the afterlives of that? Um, and kind of another very important concept in the book that you start with and kind of bring throughout, along with the the sociogenic and analytic forms of marronage or Um you talk about el mundo de la euromodernidad, so the, the world of Euro modernity. Um, and then the totalidad of that, so the totality of that world. And then also the mundo otro, which is just the other world completely. Um, and la exterioridad, so exteriority. Could you talk about what both of those mean, what you mean by them, how they relate, and why that is important to your philosophy?
0: Um yeah, it's one of those things, you know, I wish I would have read Sylvia Winter at the time, <laughs> you know, because it's like what I was trying to get at is, is, is what she talks about. Right. She talks about man, you know. And and everything that entails, you know, that that's what I mean by that world of your own modernity. You know, it's man and the normative existence that that kind of is imposed on folks. Um, and then that exteriority for me is, is that, is, is, you know, a different type of existence, way of being and knowing, you know, it's pretty much what it comes down to.
1: And you probably read her 2003 essay, I'm assuming.
0: Yeah, um, I just reread about it man. actually yesterday. Yeah, I just, I was rereading it, <laughs> I just finished it yesterday. Mm. Um, you know, so...
1: Yeah, and um, yes, yeah, I, I first read it about four, five years ago now, and I come back to it every once in a while and try to understand it a little bit more.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, there's a lot more. There's a lot more now with uh, the essays I got published on uh, what's the name of the book? I think we got to sit down and talk about culture.
1: Hmm. Oh, yeah. I haven't read that yet, but I've heard about it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Definitely. So there's, there's a lot. There's a lot. And I think they're editing her Black Metamorphosis as well. Yes,
1: her unpublished manuscript. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
0: Um,
1: yeah, so we'll see what they end up doing with that because that might answer some of these questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but even though, you know, you didn't read Winter at the time, um, you do talk about a vision of voluntad de vida de la comunidad or so community will to life maybe is a translation there. Um, and then the connection to decoloniality. So obviously following Maldonado Torres a lot, in, who's a decolonial thinker. What What is that vision? Voluntad um, de vida de la comunidad. What does that mean for you? And how does that connect to a decoloniality?
0: I mean, I guess... Really briefly, I was thinking about violence, right? You know, like Walter Rodney, when he talks about, you know, by what measure of morality could you compare the violence of the oppressed to the violence of the oppressors or something to that effect? I was thinking through that, really, is ultimately what it comes down to and the fundamental right to self-defense, right, that, you know, communities have in the face of, you know, annihilation, essentially, right? When confronted with an existential threat, you have the right to defend yourself and your community by any means necessary. So that's kind of what I was trying to, what I was, you know, wanted to think through there. Um,
1: and I threw this word out there and obviously you cite a lot that has to do with it, but decoloniality or and even Maldonado Torres and the coloniality of being, what, how would you define those? What does decoloniality mean? What does to decolonize mean in your, in your mind?
0: That's a, that's a complicated question. <laughs> that's a whole. I think that's a whole podcast episode, you know, to get into that. Um, I, I say it's a complicated question because it seems to me that now it's, nobody knows what that means. Decoloniality means, nobody knows what it means. You know, people just slap it on whatever to get their paper published and, you know, or conference paper accepted because they're in the hustle to get tenure. So, you know what I mean? So what really does it mean? Um... You know, and it's funny because there's another Puerto Rican um, thinker who's important in, uh, you know, decoloniality theory, Ramon Grifogel. He uh, published a book recently with Akal. Um, I forget the name of it, but uh, recently published. And, you know, I was looking at seeing some of the presentation of the book. And he's kind of criticizing that same tendency as well where he's like look yeah some folks that you know in the name of decoloniality or whatever were you know supporting empire you know and supporting you know coups in bolivia and this and that right um so it's you know i've personally i've kind of moved away from using those terms since just because now i mean it it has no for me, no explicatory power anymore, you know, um, but in general, you know, if we talk about decoloniality to me, right. The way I think about it is, uh, you know, decolonization, um, materially, right. Politically, symbolically, um, you know, and I think, and, and again, coming back to, you know, so winter, I think where a lot of discourses or thinkers or theories or texts or whatever kind of fall short is that they continue to, to recycle, you know, that, that the same narrative, um, you know, but in a different way, you know, and, and that's why winter was critical you know, of Marxism, liberalism, you know, in, in gender theory, right? Feminism, so on and so forth, but that bourgeois, you know, Eurocentric, you know what I mean? Um, so for me, you know, when I think about decoloniality it's that, right? It's it's you know, but it it yeah, nobody really knows what that means anymore, I think, you know. So it's kind of like intersectionality, but I won't get into that, but uh, it's kind of like that. Nobody nobody knows what it means.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and that's why it's kind of a cheeky question because it's like, can you even define it? And that's why I ask everyone to define it you know, differently according to their own understanding and also that can involve a reaction against what is happening, um, which is tricky um and the neoliberal kind of in some ways um <sighs> commodification of that um claiming of that and then you know tainting of that um I was thinking about that because I was you know looking at the concept of hegemony for my dissertation Then I was reading about it. I was like okay what's been happening with the idea over the last 50 years and now people are saying well the term itself is becoming hegemonic because of how it's being used and no one really knows what it means and i'm like oh great um so it's like meta hegemonic so maybe the the same thing's happening with decoloniality where it's like decolonizing decoloniality and then in an intersectional way, but then also, what does that mean? Um, (laughs) So it's like the perpetual problem.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm always skeptical. I'm always skeptical when, you know, institutions um, are quick to adopt and to embrace, you know, certain concepts, frameworks, whatever, theories – Um, you know, you got to be suspicious of that always, right? Like you look at intersectionality, for example, you got the CIA, you know what I mean? Coming out with the recruitment videos and stuff, you know, using the same kind of terminologies, right? Or there's other missile defense, uh, manufacturers, right? Missile manufacturers that, you know, have employed those same terms, right? So you to me, you gotta, you gotta always be suspicious when you see that, right? You gotta take a pause and be like, wait a minute, what is it about this theory that's making it so co-optable, right? Um,
1: Yeah. So do you feel like ideas of such as Voluntad de Vida de la Comunidad, do you feel like that is, at least gets us farther, or is maybe potentially better than decoloniality in any way, or do you feel like it falls into the same, you know, because it's been two years since you, or even more, since you wrote the book, so do you feel like that has changed where you're like, I don't know if that's a solution anymore, or do you still kind of see that as something that's helpful, at least?
0: Well, it was helpful for me at the time you know i mean personally I, I i still believe in you know the right to self-defense right and i think we've we've seen an uptick you know the past at least since the start of the pandemic um after you know uh, george floyd was assassinated brianna taylor you know we saw that we saw those protests we saw an uptick um in the u.s with respect to for example black gun ownership for example um, in Puerto Rico as well, you know, we've seen uh, there was a relaxation of the gun laws. Puerto Rico used to have the strictest gun laws in the U.S., if I'm not mistaken, where to conceal carry you had to go and plead your case in front of a judge. I don't think any other state had that. Um, there's a relaxation of those laws, and so now it's easier for you to get your, you know, concealed carry license and what have you. Um, so there's been an uptick as well. And, and personally, you know, I am a fan of that, right? I mean, if that's what you feel you need to do to protect yourself and your family, by all means, you know, as long as you do it responsibly, you know. So I still believe in, you know, the, the fundamental will to life and right to self-defense, you know, when faced with an existential threat. But now if that specific term that I used you know in the book if, if that's still you know I probably wouldn't use that term you know I don't think I would use any term specifically I think I fell into the trap of you know trying to come up with these neat concepts you know what I mean to you know say stuff that other folks have already said and you're like oh I'm just going to call it this and put a little label on it and you know I think I fell into some of that you know um but uh but yeah, but if it you know as it pertains or relates to decoloniality, I mean that you know I don't know, it's probably not as useful, you know. Uh, maybe it is, I don't I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um I mean I guess it means that you grow as a thinker and as a person too, where you're just like, hmm. I thought that two and a half years ago, and now I think something different. And um, people are more accepting of that now. I feel like even just in the last five or ten years, where they're like, "Yeah, growth is good, and you don't have to be stuck in your thinking forever." And it, it'd be it's better for it not to be this one kind of track that you wear in your head that you're just thinking the same thing all the time. So, you know, I think- I, I mean. I do that too, where I look back and I'm like, what? <laughs> what I don't I think there's a lot ago? of that
0: though. I don't, you know, mm, honestly, I don't think enough. there's a lot of that in, in the Academy. Yeah. Cause it's like, mm. you know, you have a brand at the end of the day. That's what it is. Right. You have a, a personal brand. You're known as a scholar of, you know, whatever, whatever label or framework. Right. And if there's something that kind of, is it going to mess up your brand and your position in the market of ideas? You know, cause at the end of the day, I mean, when you look at it, I mean, I'm. it's absurd to me, like the amount of money that some folks get paid to like speak at universities, you know, like thousands, you know what I mean? Like thousands. And if there's something that's going to, you know, some ideas can inhibit you from, you know, being able to make that money. You know, you're not, you're not going to double back and say, ah, you know what, what I said was wrong. And then you're going to try to protect your position in in the market and you're going to try to protect your brand. Um, and I think there's a lot of folks that, you know, kind of fall into that. They're not willing to say, ah, you know what, I said this, but, I, you know, I was wrong or now I'm thinking this way or they'll, they'll double down and say, you know, or they won't even gauge other ideas. Like they won't even, you know, engage with other ideas that will, uh, you know. So it becomes ideological at that point, you know, becomes a dogma. So, you know, at least that's what I've seen, you know, from what I said. So it's unfortunate, but I guess it is what it is. It's capitalism, right? Got to make the yeah. money.
1: Yeah, and you can't ever discount that. And you can't ever look past that in terms of why people do what they do or what, how things are set up or where the power is. Um, I'm, I feel like I'm lucky enough to at least know some people who are, you know, living with a bit more integrity, I guess. Um, but yeah, they think they are in the minority and they are fighting against something that it doesn't lend itself to that. And it's unfortunate. Um if the goal really is human emancipation, human thriving or how would you would conceive of that in terms of, you know, your focus on death um, that you do take. Yeah. It's, it's hard to actually actualize that. And unfortunately a lot of people don't. Um, And we, we all fail at it. I feel like I fail at it too. And um, it's a sobering reality. And, So you, you mentioned earlier, so self-determination, uh, the term you use is, uh, autogestion, uh, radical, so radical self-determination. Um, (laughs) I guess this is a, a kind of a reworking of that question again. Um, what does that look like in community? What does that look like in a world where we have all of these constraints that we can't deny? We can't deny that we're constrained by capitalism or the oppressive kind of variations and um, hegemony of the academy and of other systems? Um, Or do you feel like that is now too idealistic, I guess?
0: Um... That's, that's an interesting question. Um, so I guess it's important to note too, that, you know, I I said before that the book was a product of my master's thesis. When I started really like thinking about it, putting a proposal together, um, I was doing the readings for it was in the first semester of the 2017, 2018 school year. So, I got into it for, you know, like a month, right? And then Hurricane Maria hit. So, when I was talking, you know, or thinking through that question of, obviously, Marinage, right? That, you know, the government was non-existent, or in reality, they were, you know, they were operating, but they were, you know, hiding, um, uh, resources that you know, folks would would have shipped to Puerto Rico. You know, supplies, things like that. They were actively working to hide those things, and and you know, to do what they do. Um, so you saw the necropolitics of the state at play, right? But in general, there were there were absent, right? Like you wouldn't see necessarily cops on the street. You wouldn't like nothing, right? So you know, a lot of you know communities were just left, you know, to to fend on their own um there were folks that lost their houses and they would, you know, if there was an abandoned school that got shut down cuz that's, you know, the government had been doing that shutting down schools like crazy. Um you know, they would take over the school and turn it into you know, uh, some apartments for a group of individuals that maybe lost their homes during the hurricane. So in that sense auto gestión which um Translates to like a self, uh, I don't, I don't really have a great translation for it. I know some other folks have, you know, translated in such a way that, you know, captures the spirit of it, but, uh, they don't come to mind right now, but it's kind of like a self. If you were to do a Google translate, it's like a self management or whatever, but that's not it doesn't quite capture the spirit of what it is. And it's escaping me some of the better translations. Um, but in essence, it's it's that right? It's not depending on institutions, not depending on the government, on NGOs or anything like that. It's just a community coming together to, you know, autonomously, uh, you know, do X, Y or Z. Right. And we saw that during uh, Maria, you know, in the context of this. Um, you know, folks come together, cleaning up, you know, the roads from, you know, cleaning up the debris, um, doing all those things. I think that's really important because without romanticizing it, right. Um, cause there could be problematic practices in that as well, but I think it functions as a laboratory, you know, to, to, to work out ways of relating to one another, you know, um, I think it also relates to when we talk about, you know, uh, abolition, abolition or abolitionism. I think it also relates to that. Right. Um, you know, how do we, how should we be in community in such a way that, um, we support ourselves without having to depend on the government, but also at the same time, not letting the government off the hook, right? Which is, is part of not romanticizing it, right? So it's not necessarily a solution for decolonization because um, the state still, we need to make sure they do what they're supposed to do. But at the same time, it's an important tool um, to survive. So...
1: Yeah. Um, And on the ground, it's complicated. (laughs) Easier said than done. Um, So we've kind of talked about how you have, um, you know, grown as a thinker and you're still thinking, you're discovering new pieces, new ways of thinking about um, really important concepts like this. Are you working on something now that's like, along these lines do you have writing projects that you are um thinking of doing or are you going to write in like a dis- different capacity like more of a um like not necessarily a book but another way or do you want to write another book
0: <laughs> that's an interesting question um <laughs> so the, the, for the past maybe two or, two or three weeks or so and even I guess it's like a post-dissertation type slump, if you will. Um, there's that aspect of it, but also just seeing in general some of the things we were talking about earlier about the academy. Um, you know, that's kind of like, I, you know, this makes me want to, or it made me want to disengage from the academy in general and academic writing. Um, particularly cause I don't get paid for this, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I just kind of want to, but at the same time, it's like, uh, I also see it as a type of, as a, as an art form, you know, like philosophical writing. I see it more like art. Um, and in that sense, it's necessary for me. Like, I feel like I have to write if, if, if not to publish just to get, you know, help me think about things and get things off my chest, right? So in that sense, there is a, a book that I'm trying to work on um, that's tentatively titled An Indestructible Life. And that's a riff off a line in this novel titled uh, Slave Old Man by Patrick uh, chamoisou from Martinique. I think that's how you pronounce his last name, um, from Martinique. And it's essentially um, a novel about uh, Marinage, right? And there's one line in particular that I I found I I gravitate towards where, you know, the slave old man, no longer enslaved, right? Runs away from the plantation. Um, The kind of, you know, uh, slave owner... Chases after him, whatever, with this dog, and you know, this maroon now is facing this dog, and he says, "You know, I I don't really want to fight, but I'm possessed by an indestructible life, right? So what I want to think about a little bit in that in that in that book, if I ever get around to actually writing it, is how do we think about, you know." Uh, blackness how do we think about the lives of the colonized beyond their reduction to politics right like i don't i don't agree with this whole like quote unquote you know my existence is resistance or whatever you know like i don't necess- you know necessarily agree with that um So I want to think a little bit through that, um, which also relates to the question of revolt. I've been thinking about revolt lately, particularly when we think about the summer of 2019 in Puerto Rico. Um, We think about, of course, you know, uh, globally, but, you know, in particular in the US, you know, in in 2020, after Ahmaud Arbery, you know, Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd were assassinated. Um, and we think about that. Um, and I also want to think a little bit about this violence and death in general in Puerto Rico, um, because this is, I mean, it, it really is a narco state, right? Um, you know, looking at statistics, I think it was last year, the year before, I uh, like 600 and some murders, like more than half are drug related. You know what I mean? It's like a constant, constant thing. Um, So thinking about some of that uh, as well. So I don't know if I'll ever get around to actually getting it together, but, you know, at least that's the aspiration.
1: Yeah, important questions to be thinking about for sure. Um, And looking at that from a kind of holistic viewpoint, I think, will be helpful for thinking about you know what to do about life as it is now uh which is not great sometimes obviously um well um i'm glad that this book has been written i'm glad that that young kid who's gonna pick it up in the library um you know near where you live um i'm glad that's gonna happen um you know and this book wasn't written for the Academy kind of in the stricter sense. And that's, you know, great. And we need that. So um, thanks so much for the book and thanks for talking to me today and um, have a great rest of your day. Um, Sign off and say, bye, have a good one.
0: Uh, Thanks. Thanks for having me.